This is an ABC podcast. On November 9th, 1989, almost exactly 30 years ago, the Berlin Wall came down and with it, the Cold War ended. It's an historic and a highly emotional moment. For practical purposes, the Berlin Wall has been all but torn down. A crossing which in the past has claimed the lives of hundreds can now be made safely by joyous tens of thousands. I'm Sarah Percy, and I'm an Associate Professor of International Relations at the University of Queensland. In this special series, in the lead-up to the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, we'll hear the stories that explain why it happened and why it still matters today. The Berlin Wall was the most potent symbol of the Cold War. Yet months earlier, no one would have predicted its fall. Mr. Gorbachev, Tear down this wall. In the years leading up to 1989, the Soviets held their empire in an iron grip. Protest was met with brutal repression. Change looked impossible. Democracy was not the concept that was imaginable. A superpower rivalry had divided the world into two armed camps. Nuclear war looked imminent. Every man, woman, and child lives under a nuclear sword of Damocles, hanging by the slenderest of threads, capable of being cut at any moment. In the 1980s, it seemed like things would never change unless it was through war, maybe even nuclear war. But things did change. And perhaps most surprisingly, they changed peacefully. Today, the world looks precarious. A lot of things we take for granted, things that make the world peaceful, are under pressure. So what can the peaceful end of the Cold War tell us about how to create stability out of a world that looks so dangerous? This series tells the stories which explain why the Cold War still matters. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. The division of the world between two superpowers was already apparent in 1946, when British Prime Minister Winston Churchill coined the phrase Iron Curtain. The world had moved from the horrors of a violent war to a cold war, where the US and the USSR faced off against each other. And Sofia, all these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. The Soviets built the Iron Curtain because they believed that territory was the only way they could be secure. After all, they'd just been invaded by Nazi Germany. Hitler's troops got almost all the way to Moscow, and turning them back cost millions of Soviet lives. Nearly 14% of the Soviet population was killed in World War II. Preventing another invasion was essential for the Soviet Union. All the Eastern European satellite states were a necessary buffer between Moscow and the West. The Iron Curtain didn't just divide Europe. By the 1980s, much of the world had been split into two camps, one American and one Soviet. The contest between the Soviets and the Americans in that post-war period uh, that was extremely high intense uh, rivalry played out on a global stage with nuclear weapons and arms races and all that sort of thing, but which had at its sort of most important feature the absence of war, hence, you know, the cold part of the title um, that between the two of them. So the, the two greatest powers coming out of the Second World War got toe-to-toe 
frequently built arms to fight a war, prepared to fight one another, but didn't actually do it, for which, you know, we, we are, for which we are both grateful and um, still here as a consequence. That's Professor Nick Bisley, head of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University. For him, the crucial element of the Cold War is the superpower rivalry. In this episode, we'll take a look at how the two nations faced off and the role this rivalry played in ending the Cold War. Since 1947, a group of scientists have maintained a device that is supposed to let us know how close the world is to destruction by nuclear weapons. It's called the Doomsday Clock. The closer the clock is to midnight, the closer we all are to nuclear destruction. Throughout the Cold War, the clock inched closer and farther from midnight, depending on the relationship between the Soviet Union and the United States. If we looked at the clock in 1984, we would see that it was four minutes to midnight, the closest it had ever been. Superpower tensions were at their highest. So how did things become so tense? Professor Fred Halliday actually referred to the early 1980s as the Second Cold War. So referencing that there'd been extraordinary tension at the start in the 1940s and 1950s, but that with the election of Ronald Reagan and the acceleration of antagonism between the United States and the Soviet Union, that arguably the period, 1983 in particular, is one of the most volatile periods in recent international history. Associate Professor Andrew Phillips is from the School of Politics and International Studies at the University of Queensland. There was a sense at the time that this was an antagonism that looked to be permanent. And there was belief that to the extent there was stability in the international system at all, that came from the logic of mutually assured destruction. But I think that it would be a mistake for us to look back on this uh, with some kind of nostalgia of thinking that there was an underlying stability that contrasts dramatically with the unpredictability of the current world. Uh, this was a period of extraordinary dynamism in the ex to the extent that there was significant contestation between the United States and the Soviet Union in the third world, so places like Nicaragua, places like Angola. But it was also a time at which you've got the United States president declaring that the Soviet Union, the peer competitor, was quote-unquote an evil empire. This was extraordinary language even for the period of the Cold War and a real sign at the possibility that the world superpowers were approaching a precipice at that time. Let's not forget, we're talking about a nuclear precipice. Being on the precipice of nuclear annihilation was a very real thing. And I think a lot of people today forget that that period of the Cold War, you had on one side 11,000 nuclear warheads, on the other side nine to 10,000 nuclear warheads and... You know, the end, you know, it was a very real possibility that the end of humanity, the end of the world as we know it, um, could occur. By the early 1960s, the only thing preventing war between the two superpowers was the logic of mutually assured destruction, that any attack by the US or the Soviets would lead to nuclear retaliation and annihilation. Mutually assured destruction was a high-stakes game. As long as it worked, it prevented war. But if it failed, then the world would be destroyed. And people all over the world knew it. You may know that Americans were building fallout shelters in their basement because they were afraid in the 50s and 60s of nuclear warfare. That's retired U.S. Rear Admiral Ronald Kurth. I was a nuclear weapons officer in the U.S. Navy, Sarah. Aboard an attack carrier, I had a very substantial magazine. I also had 
total respect for nuclear weapons and the conviction that nobody wins with their use. I was terrified that somebody might wake me up in the middle of the night because I was the only one who could really arm a substantial number of those weapons. So uh, the Russians rattled their nuclear weapons to signify their uh, position at the table of power. The young Ronald Kurth wasn't wrong to be afraid. Everybody was. In fact, the logic of mutually assured destruction meant that the balance of power was held together by fear and luck. This situation of extreme tension meant the world was on high alert all the time, so much so that in the 1950s, the US and Canada spotted what looked like Soviet bombers on the radar and scrambled fighter jets in response. the last minute, a closer look revealed that those bombers were, in fact, a flock of geese. In 1980, Ronald Reagan became the President of the United States. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And Reagan's election brought nuclear tension to new heights. To it's undeniable that the Reagan administration deliberately ramped up the pressure. Uh, when Reagan came to office in January 1981, he sought not merely to contain the Soviet Union, but ultimately, ideally, to roll it back and defeat it. So in your discussions of the nuclear freeze proposals, I urge you to beware the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely uh, declaring yourselves above it all and label both sides equally at fault, to ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. In a situation of such extreme danger and really heightened rhetoric, it would be militarily foolish not to be ready to fight a war. So both sides had to practice with military exercises, dress rehearsals for war. NATO conducted one such dress rehearsal called Operation Able Archer, which was a little too convincing. Philip Deary is an emeritus professor of history at Victoria University. I'll give you two examples which illustrate from both sides the sense that apocalyptic scenario could emerge. The, the first was an operation initiated by the Soviet Union called Ryan. Now, Ryan is a Russian acronym for nuclear missile strike. And what it involved, just, just briefly, was one of the biggest intelligence efforts by the Soviet Union to discover in the West, through its agents, whether there were any preparations for a nuclear attack. And this involved uh, gaining intelligence on everything from blood banks to hospital preparations to the frequency with which people were visiting nuclear shelters and, and so on. So while this was underway, and this was launched in 1982, while this was underway, it in fact became a self-fulfilling prophecy in extent because in 1983, the West initiated a, an exercise called Operation Able Archer 83. And this is when 
many suggest the world was far closer to nuclear war than than it, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, Able Archer was a, a tactical exercise in which the nuclear threat would be raised in a sort of an exercise to DEFCON 1, Defence Condition 1. Many of the leaders of the, of the world were involved in the West, sorry, were involved in this, and the Soviet Union was monitoring it very closely through um, Operation Ryan. So this went on for five days, and during that period, it's quite possible that the Soviet Union could have launched a preemptive attack in response to what they saw was a nuclear attack imminent from the NATO exercise. And it was quite different from previous exercises on a scale that was much greater than previous exercises. And one of the reasons the near miss didn't become a hit was due to a very high level Soviet double agent called Oleg Gordievsky. He was the KGB resident, or in other words, the chief, in London. And he had been working for some years with MI6 at a very high level. And he was regarded as one of the top defectors when he eventually defected in the history of Western intelligence. It was he who informed his MI6 handler, who, you know, through the chain of events, informed Thatcher, who informed Reagan, that the Soviets were taking this exercise extremely serious. I think it was uh, Brezhnev still in power then, soon to be replaced by um, Andropov, who did. And so they pulled back. There were a number of factors that made Operation Able Archer especially worrying for the Soviets. The other element to it also is that at this time, it not only is a situation of significant scale, they're using new encrypted communication systems at the time. So the Soviets are having difficulty figuring out exactly what's going on. Additionally, heads of state are involved in the Able Archer exercise. So I think as a consequence, there is a sense of, well, you've got leaders involved, you've got all sorts of uh, radio silence happening that shouldn't be happening, you've got mobilisation on a massive scale, and it's happening against the backdrop of a Soviet historical memory, not of the Cold War, but of June 1941, when the Nazis launched on June 22nd, 1941, a massive assault against the Soviet Union in order to wipe it off the map. So this is deeply embedded in the intellectual DNA of the Soviet high command, that they are susceptible to a sudden first strike. They've now got Ronald Reagan declaring that they're an evil empire. You've had six weeks previously a massive scare after the Soviet shootdown of, uh, of a South Korean airliner. So you've got this entire confluence of factors that are making this an extraordinarily volatile situation. Able Archer provided a concrete demonstration of just how dangerous the Cold War had become by the early 1980s. But there were very few options available to the Americans and the Soviets that could realistically reduce nuclear tensions, especially because the possibility of negotiation between the leadership of both countries was limited. The Soviet leadership was on its last legs. There's an old Soviet joke that gives a picture of how bad things were. Stalin is on a train with the two leaders that came after him, Brezhnev and Khrushchev. The train comes to an unexpected stop. The minutes tick by. 
Nothing happens. No one comes to explain what's going wrong. The three leaders sit and stare at each other. Stalin is getting angrier and angrier, so he sticks his head out the window and says, if this train doesn't start moving, the driver will be shot. Khrushchev says, no, Comrade Stalin, we should have an inquiry. We should work out exactly what's happened. We should set up subcommittees, establish the reasons the train has stopped, and then the train will move. Brezhnev looks at the other two and says, Comrades, I have the solution. We should just cover up the windows, play a record of train sounds, and pretend we're moving. Brezhnev's response to the problems of the Soviet Union was to pretend everything was fine. He was old, tired, and increasingly unwell. He died while still in office in 1982. Brezhnev dies. Then nine or ten months later, he's replaced by Yuri Andropov, who had previously been the head of the KGB. You know, you go from a guy in his mid-70s to a guy in his high 60s, and it looks like you're basically getting more of the same of this sort of highly bureaucratic, nothing happening, utterly charisma-free party apparatchiks. Um, And the whole system, both within the Soviet Union and the broader Soviet bloc, looks like the thing is just set in aspic. And then about nine months later, again, Chernyenko dies. And there's, you know, the jokes start going around at at the funerals. You know, so George H.W. Bush is, you know, said to have said to to Margaret Thatcher, I'll see you next year at the next one. And so you had, within about two and a half year period, you have three Soviet leaders die. And this is, in many respects, kind of tells the story of the Soviet Union. So this system that's, that's just grinding to a halt, that's been run by tired old men who are literally dying. The failing Soviet leadership meant that diplomacy wasn't really an option to bring the Cold War to an end. So Reagan adopted a deliberate military strategy. The U.S. would drive the Soviets out of the nuclear competition by outspending and out-innovating them. In 1983, Reagan announced the creation of the Strategic Defense Initiative. We seek neither military superiority nor political advantage. Our only purpose, one all people share, is to search for ways to reduce the danger of nuclear war. My fellow Americans, Tonight, we're launching an effort which holds the promise of changing the course of human history. There will be risks and results take time, but I believe we can do it. As we cross this threshold, I ask for your prayers and your support. Yeah, so the Strategic Defense Initiative was an attempt that was completely technologically without feasibility, but the idea is that you would have space-based anti-ballistic missile systems. So in layperson's terms, the idea here is that the Soviets would be launching their intercontinental ballistic missiles to destroy the United States. And those have to travel through space. They have to travel through space. There are interceptors in space that do their job taking out these missiles. Essentially, the concept is to take the mutual out of mutually assured destruction. So the United States would be able to retaliate against the Soviet Union, would be able to launch potentially a crippling first strike, but the Soviets would have no recourse to retaliation. There were attempts at the time by the Soviets to convince the world that there was a counterpart initiative they were working on called Red Shield. Red Shield was even more fictitious than the Strategic Defence Initiative. But what essentially the message that the Reagan administration was trying to send out here, and this is where there's often real challenges in diplomacy because you're trying to do a number of things in the one move. What Reagan was trying to do with Strategic Defence Initiative is to say, 
the United States has the capacity to just keep escalating in terms of the cost of the conflict to the Soviet Union, but also the level of technological sophistication that's required to keep up. But what they're also trying to do is to say, well, once we make ourselves safe from nuclear retaliation, we will then be in a position of safety and magnanimity to be able to negotiate with the Soviets from a position of strength. Now, you can imagine from Moscow that it's not an especially reassuring message, but that was essentially what strategic defence initiative Star Wars was all about. Reagan's strategy was a solid one. In fact, the Americans had underestimated how bad the Soviet economy actually was. Peter Varghese is a former diplomat and now the Chancellor of the University of Queensland. By the 80s, I think it was becoming more and more evident that the long-term sustainability of that system had a shelf life. It might not have looked that way in the earlier phases of the Cold War, and indeed there were periods during the Cold War when many argued that the Soviet Union as an economy was stronger than the United States, and there was a level of confidence on the Soviet side, I think, about the march of history being on their side. But I think I think by the 80s it was beginning to look shaky, even though probably very few people would have had a genuinely accurate view about the state of the Soviet economy at that time because we were sort of making extrapolations and relying on analysis which was not based on a lot of hard evidence. In reality, by the early 1980s, the Soviet economy was much, much worse than the Americans even knew. There's a realisation from the leadership that they've got to reform the economy. You know, that sense is brought to a head by a collapse in commodity prices in about 1986, 1987. So the, the one thing that the Soviets are able to sell outside of the Soviet Union is oil and gas. And when the bottom falls out of the oil market in the mid-1980s, essentially the tap gets turned off. And that adds this really acute sense to the desire to, to economically reform. In the command economy... The, yeah, they, everything's organised by quotas. There's a central planning group that essentially sets out the plan for everything, including you know, from we will have you know, 3,000 intercontinental ballistic missiles down to you know, we will have two and a half tonnes of nails in various sizes. And what would occur as the year's end would approach, they'd realise they haven't made enough nails. More precisely, they haven't got enough weight of nails. So they'd make a few really, really big nails and resolve the problem and so they'd have they'd hit their quota in the sense they'd hit the one and a half tons whatever the number was but half of that would be three big nails that are of no use to anyone the soviets were beginning to realize that they couldn't compete after all if you struggle to make nails building a space-based weapon system is going to present a pretty huge challenge I'm Sarah Percy. I'm an associate professor at the University of Queensland, and this is why the Cold War still matters. In this episode, we're hearing the story of how the superpower rivalry had to change for the Cold War to end. In 1985, something really significant happened that would alter the Cold War dynamics completely, and much to everyone's surprise, eventually lead to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mikhail Gorbachev came to power. Gorbachev is this fresh face and he's in his mid to late 50s. He's the first leader of the Soviet Union to have gone to university. He's the first leader of the Soviet Union to have travelled abroad regularly as part of his sort of professional life. And he has an energy. Yes, he's a Soviet leader, but he seems to have a kind of 
panache that we just haven't seen in any Soviet bloc leader for decades and decades. He very quickly realises the problems that, or he's already aware of them as a Politburo member, but as a leader, he suddenly realises the, the very acute problems that he's got. In July 1985, Gorbachev announced that the Soviets would stop some types of nuclear testing. People in the West took notice. I like Mr. Gorbachev. We can do business together. We both believe in our own political systems. He firmly believes in his. I firmly believe in mine. We're never going to change one another. So that is not in doubt. British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher noticed that Gorbachev was doing things differently. His rise to power opened the door, if only a little at first, for a new way for the superpowers to interact. But we have two great interests in common, that we should both do everything we can to see that war never starts again, and therefore we go into the disarmament talks determined to make them succeed. And secondly, I think we both believe that they're the more likely to succeed if we can build up confidence in one another and trust in one another about each other's approach. Economic reform, the increase in Soviet openness, America's approach to the arms race, and a failing Soviet economy formed a cocktail of changes that culminated in a kind of unexpected place. In front of a cozy fireplace in Geneva, where Reagan and Gorbachev met for the first time, they were there to discuss nuclear issues, and they hit it off so well that they chatted long past their scheduled time. The Geneva meeting began a series of summits where the superpowers began to dial back the nuclear arms race. The most important of these meetings was in Reykjavik in 1987. The two of them have an unstructured 90-minute conversation, just the two of them and their interpreters. And they both agree that both countries will give up all of their nuclear weapons, and they walk out and tell their tell their delegations that they've come to this conclusion. And both delegations completely freak out and say, no, 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 this cannot possibly be. So they, what the edict, that, or sorry, the, the statement that came out after it basically said, you know, we've agreed to work towards significant nuclear denuclearization. But they really found in, in the reduction of strategic nuclear weapons a point on which they could, you know, something they both felt very strongly about and on which a, a very warm personal bond between the two was built. Mr. General Secretary, Mrs. Gorbachev, this is an emotional moment for Mrs. Reagan and me. We have been truly moved by the warmth and the generous hospitality that we've received from all of our Soviet hosts during this brief visit, but most especially from the two of you. Gorbachev and Reagan's personal relationship was a key ingredient in the success of American-Soviet diplomacy. The summits between the two leaders eventually made significant changes to the nuclear arms race. They led to a series of agreements that limited different types of nuclear weapon. These changes had a real impact. The doomsday clock, which was at four minutes to midnight in 1984, had rolled back by 1987 to six minutes the world was nearly twice as far away from nuclear destruction. It became clear that his fundamental judgment about the need for deep reform, structural reform in the Soviet economy, that signaled that he was someone who was thinking about things very differently. I think probably most dramatically was his willingness to entertain 
disarmament and arms control initiatives, which would have been completely, you know, out of the realm of contemplation. I mean, if you if you think about how far Gorbachev as a leader was prepared to go in entertaining proposals, even if the system later sort of brought him back to something a little bit more traditional. But I think we saw a lot of evidence of that in that field. I mean, I don't think anyone saw Gorbachev then as someone who was interested in dismantling the Soviet Union. Quite the contrary. I mean, like all reformers, he was reforming in order to be rejuvenated rather than reforming in order to, you know, go in a completely, in a completely different direction. Gorbachev was prepared to do things differently, so differently that the superpower relationship was completely altered. In this space of just over seven years, we went from this and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire to simply to this. Mr. General Secretary, though my pronunciation may give you difficulty, the maxim is dovayai no proviai. Trust, but verify. You repeat that at every meeting. <laughs> the superpower relationship was so different and so much more relaxed that when Berlin and the rest of the Eastern European bloc began to demand change, Gorbachev was no longer operating under the fear of U.S. annihilation. He could imagine a world where these Eastern European states could become independent and the Soviet Union could survive without them. The stage was set for revolution in 1989. When Berliners began to tear down the wall, Gorbachev was prepared to let them. The sound of Berliners attacking the hated symbol which has divided their city for 28 years. Hundreds of holes have been chipped through the wall with implements ranging from screwdrivers and chisels to sledgehammers and wrecking bars. The superpower relationship also contributed to a chain of events within the Soviet Union that sparked economic reform. These economic reforms began a cascade that required further political reform and eased the iron grip preventing free speech. This in turn made it harder for the Soviet Union to control its satellite states. So when all those people began to gather in Berlin in the autumn of 1989, the Soviets were no longer willing or able to control them, and the wall came down. The communist world is alive with more change this morning. East Germany has opened its borders with the West. Checkpoint Charlie, the hole in the wall between East and West Berlin, will no longer be a barrier to freedom. The only word uh, everyone uh, seems to have on their lips is amazing. No one quite believed it at first. Even the adults were saying they would never forget the sudden change in their lives. <laughs> this story of the Cold War might look like a story where the U.S. wins. After all, the strategy to force the Soviets into an arms race they couldn't win does seem to have worked, and there's a lot of truth to the narrative that the Soviets were unable to compete economically. As retired U.S. Rear Admiral Kurth explains, American capacity, should it choose to bring it to bear, and increasing Soviet inability to uh, afford uh, the kind of military competition that they thought necessary. But like all stories about complex international events, it's not that simple. The Cold War is often presented as a battle between liberalism and totalitarianism, the free West and the communist East. Professor Hope Harrison from George Washington University explains. The U.S. 
wasn't certainly, unfortunately speaking, and as an American, the U.S. was not always on the side of democracy, that's for sure, propping up uh, autocratic regimes in Latin America and elsewhere. So it wasn't all democracy and freedom on the Western side, but compared to the communist system, um, there's no question that a lot about the Cold War did have to do, I think, between about this difference between a communist regime with lots of restrictions on freedoms and a democratic regime. The U.S. didn't really win the Cold War, but the relationship between the two superpowers is critical to understanding how Cold War tensions gradually relaxed through the 1980s. The fear that nuclear weapons would destroy the world was real, and it forced both Reagan and Gorbachev to the negotiating table. Nations do not distrust each other because they're armed. They are armed because they distrust each other. And just as real peace means the presence of freedom and justice, as well as the absence of war, so too summits must be discussions not just about arms, but about the fundamental differences that cause nations to be armed. The end of the Cold War should remind us that the relationship between adversaries is incredibly important for world peace. If leaders can't work together, they have very few options to step back from crisis. We should also remember that we're even closer to nuclear destruction today than we were in the 1980s, where mistakes and misinterpretations nearly led to nuclear war. Today, the doomsday clock is at two minutes to midnight. That's closer than it was throughout the entire Cold War. Have we really learned the lessons we should have learned about how risky nuclear weapons are? These are just some reasons that the end of the Cold War matters, but there are so many more. Remember the definitions of the Cold War that we began this episode with? We talked a lot about rivalry between two powers, about a bipolar international system, but that's not the only way to define the Cold War and it's not the only story of how it ended. Carmen Bugan, a Romanian-American poet and former dissident, defines the Cold War from inside the Iron Curtain, looking out. Well, I will define it, I think, in the same way Orwell did, which was a war of language, a war of propaganda. And I think it's, it's been fought uh, <laughs> to devastating effect on both sides. And I'm, I'm glad that the system where I came from has ended. But it's, it was a war of language more than anything else. And I think the traces will be felt for a very long time because it will be very hard for people to trust after the, the psychological damage that was inflicted on, well, two generations at least. In the next episode, we'll hear about the War of Words and how dissidence and protest brought down the Iron Curtain. I'm Sarah Percy, and this is Why the Cold War Still Matters. The producer for this series is Edwina Stott, and the sound engineer is Steve Fieldhouse. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.